Man risks losing his son if he can't find an apartment he can afford. Private development in Vancouver that demolished 700 units of social housing to build 282 new units of social housing has only produced 53 units since 2008. Parkland Corporation, the oil company that owns a refinery in Burnaby, has doubled its quarter three profits over last year. And Pakistan orders the mass deportation of Afghans from inside its country. Good morning. It's Thursday, November 2nd. I'm Nora coming to you from the fine city of Toronto. Here are your headlines. We start today in St. John's, where Tristan Keats is fighting to find a living situation that will allow him to keep his son. The 26-year-old currently lives with his mother and three-year-old. The three live in a one-bedroom apartment in a basement. The landlord has given them notice that they need to leave in a few months, and so Keats is desperate to find something he can afford. Keats is especially worried because having this apartment has given him the necessary stability to get clean and take care of his son. It was his son who pushed him to get sober and try to improve his situation. Keats thinks that living on income support has been the reason why it's been so hard for him to find an apartment. Very few landlords even call him back when he inquires about their rental units. There is a three-year-long waiting list for public housing, and so he's worried that he'll be pushed into a shelter. The problem with that, aside from the notoriously bad conditions of Newfoundland and Labrador's shelter system, is that he will not be allowed to bring his son. CBC's Arlette Lazarenko reports that parents who are forced into emergency shelters have lost custody of their children before. And there's another catch-22 that Keats has to navigate. If he tried to access public rental funding support, which isn't clear that he'd be able to get, he'd have to remove himself from the public housing waitlist. Lazarenko talks with Abby Quinlan, who works with the Single Parent Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, and she says that they've seen a big spike in the number of people using their services, especially the food bank. Next, to the other side of Canada and more housing news. Back in 2008, a social housing complex that is next to Queen Elizabeth Park in Vancouver was purchased by a company called Holborn Properties. The sale went for $337 million and 700 people were displaced from their residences as a result. The promise from Holborn, which is owned by a single family, and side note, CBC News, they report that it's owned by a Malaysian family, but doesn't indicate if the family is like in Malaysia or if they're Canadians who are Malaysian. Not a super helpful bit of reporting on bylined CBC News piece. The company promised to build more than 1,500 units and include 282 social housing units. That was a drop of more than 400 units from what was there before. But since 2008, just 53 social housing units have been built. Vancouver City Council passed a motion to, quote, hasten the construction of social housing, unquote. They also removed conditions on the deal that insisted that two phases of social housing had to be completed before market condos could be occupied. Obviously, that was a way to ensure that the new owners would put an emphasis on the social housing units before they could make money on the market condos. 
Mayor Ken Sim justified this decision by explaining that, quote, at the end of the day, we need to build more housing, unquote, which, of course, doesn't actually mean we need to build more housing for poor people, just more units to be bought and sold. The article then randomly mentions that BC Housing met with the company and its lenders and, quote, can vouch for the company's claim that they could not secure financing, unquote, which is a detail that comes out of nowhere and doesn't get linked back to why this would stop them from building social housing units. BC Housing agreed with the request to drop the permit holds, and I guess we're supposed to assume that the permit holds were stopping lenders from financing the project? I don't get it. I don't really understand what the connection is there. And CBC doesn't actually explain. The article basically stops making sense from there. The province is going to be involved in some way, but the article doesn't explain how, and then quotes city councillors who are opposed to the decision, specifically Pete Fry, Christine Boyle, and Adrian Carr. Fry argued that the company should be able to finance the project itself by leveraging other properties that it owns. And by the way, this company owns a lot of properties, including the Paradox Hotel Vancouver, Trump International Hotel, which is no longer a Trump hotel, and quote, an entire downtown city block. Anyway, CBC reports that they fought very hard to get the sale agreement between the province and Holborn, which they were able to get, but only in 2021. Back in 2008, the Liberals gave Holborn a $211 million interest-free set of loans. And the company has basically done nothing with the land since. Now, here's a little note to CBC News Vancouver. Edit your pieces better. This piece is totally disjointed, and I can tell that the first and last part of the article was written by someone else than the rest of the article, because neither of it fits into the piece. Anyway, good luck to Vancouver as they try to get out of this mess and maybe save a few units of social housing. And again, if you're wondering why we have a housing crisis, where the housing crisis comes from, it's stuff like this. Next to oil and gas news, third quarter results are out for Parkland Corporation. The fuel retailer has reported that its income this quarter, quarter three, has more than doubled in 2023 compared to the same period last year. This year, they made $230 million in profit in quarter three alone versus $105 million last year. The Calgary-based company operates a refinery in Burnaby, and the soaring new profits are due to, quote, record refinery utilization and record co-processing volumes, unquote. They are on track to make more than $1.85 billion this year. So if you're wondering what exactly is happening in oil and gas while Canada burns, well, they're making ridiculous profits. And finally, to Pakistan. The Pakistani government has ordered Afghans who are undocumented or unregistered in that country to leave or face deportation and arrest, and the deadline for the order has just passed. It was October 31st. The expulsion targets all migrants, but the vast majority of migrants in Pakistan are Afghans. As a result, thousands have fled already from the country. The UN estimates that there are more than 2 million undocumented Afghans in Pakistan, and the Associated Press reports that at least 600,000 of them left after the Taliban retook power in 2021. Pakistan and Afghanistan's border is 2,611 kilometers long. 
Pakistan accuses Afghanistan of not doing enough to stop Taliban-allied militants who stage attacks in Pakistan. Of course, Afghanistan's government denies this. Thousands of the people who face deportation from Pakistan to Afghanistan are actually waiting to have their refugee claims processed by the United States. The rules in the United States is that refugee claims must be made inside of a third country for them to be heard. And so going to Pakistan became necessary for many to try and secure refugee status to go to the United States. The U.S. planned to bring 25,000 Afghan refugees to that country. Those are your headlines for Thursday, November 2nd. I am Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a very, very nice Thursday.